Good morning. It's always an honor to be with you guys. And as uh, Pastor Doug mentioned, my wife is 20 weeks pregnant. And we really appreciate the five or six years that you guys prayed for us as we serve with infertility every Sunday. And I think that's a perfect example of what we're going to talk about today in today's sermon. With that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we just come before you today. And we just want to thank you for this awesome privilege you've given us. For us just to gather in your name, just to sing songs to you, hear your word preached and expounded on. And the last few months going on, it's just been so crazy. I just pray you just help us to keep all the distractions away so we can focus on you. And we just pray that the Supreme Court justices stay strong and overturn Roe and we, so that millions of babies can be saved every year. And we just give you the thanks and praise in all things. Amen. Okay. If, if you could, please open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Starting in verse 1. Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each of you look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have a reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. So my friends, let me ask you a few questions. Is the church just a religious social club where you get together with other people to talk about spiritual things? Is it a place where, the, where your relationships are superficial and you do not have any real connections? Is it a place where your responsibilities and concern for each other end when you walk out the door? Is it a place where other people's problems are not your problems and their business is not your business? Is it simply a building you go to on Sunday mornings? Hopefully you've answered no to all those questions. However, that is what church is to many Christians. They do not realize what it means to be the church and do not partake in the blessings that come from being part of it. The church is so much more than a religious country club or a beautiful building with stained glass windows. The word church is based upon the Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out assembly of God. It is assembly or congregation made up of sinners who have been redeemed by Christ to be his bride. It is made up of God's elect children who have been adopted into the family of God. If you've truly repented of your sins and entrusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then you are a member of God's family. And just like being a member of a physical family, being a member of God's family comes with responsibilities and accountability. 
You are responsible to help your brothers and sisters grow in Christ, and they're responsible to help you do the same. In a sense, you are called to be your brother's keeper. This morning, we're going to examine how you can biblically be your brother's keeper in three points. The rescue, the relief, and then the reflection. First, let's look at the rescue. Verse 1. Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each of you look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. As a blood-bought child of God, you are no longer a slave to sin. It is no longer your master. You have been set free by Christ's work on the cross. However, you are at war with your flesh and still have to fight against your old nature. Tom Askell said, The Christian life is a war, and the fierce battles are those that rage within the heart of every believer. The new birth radically and permanently changes a person's sinful nature, but it does not immediately liberate that nature from all of the remnants of sin. Birth is followed by growth, and that growth involves warfare. My friends, if you're in Christ, you have already won this war. Christ has fought it on your behalf and won. But as far as your Christian life is concerned, your battle against sin has just begun. The outcome has already been decided. The war is over, but there are still some battles that need to be fought. It is during these battles against sin that one of your brothers and sisters in Christ may be on the losing end and needs to be rescued. Sin no longer has any power over him, but he's not taking the way of escape that God has provided. He is, he is getting beat up by his sin and may be drowning in despair. He needs somebody to rescue him. And it is up to you as a brother's keeper to launch a rescue mission to snatch him out of the fire, as it says in Jude 22-23. to And on some who are doubting, have mercy. And for others, save, snatching them out of the fire. And others have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. In order to rescue your brother, you must confront sin. Yes, you heard that right. You must confront sin. For many Christians, the thought of confronting sin is a foreign concept. They almost recoil at the thought of it. Whenever the topic comes up, they love to throw out Christian cliches and Bible verses taken out of context, such as, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone, and do not judge. Whenever scripture twists like that, I can't help but to think of Paul Washer's famous quote, twist not scripture, lest ye be like the devil. My friends, one of the reasons why there was so much sin in the professing church is we've neglected our duty to confront our brothers and sisters who are in sin. When we do not confront sin, it gives a black eye to the church and blasphemes the name of Christ. Confronting sin is not optional. Jesus himself commanded us to do it in Matthew 18, 15-17, when he said, Now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens 
you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. But before we move on, we have to make a clarification. Jesus is not deputizing you into the righteousness police. By being your brother's keeper, it is not meant that you're sent out as a fruit inspector where you confront your brother over every stumble or misstep in his walk. You do not need to confront him when he makes the slightest offense against you. In 1 Peter 4.8, we are reminded that love covers a multitude of sins. You're called to confront your brother when he's been caught in any transgression. The word caught means that your brother has been ensnared or trapped in sin. He's been taken captive and is starting to dominate his life and destroy his testimony. Often, he may not have been aware of the danger he is in. In some cases, it might have started because he tried to get as close to the line as possible and didn't realize that he crossed over it. He might be experiencing a dark night of the soul and is not biblically dealing with his situation. And in some cases, he's living in open rebellion against God. No matter which case it is, he needs somebody to sound the alarm. He needs somebody to rescue him. And that person is you. As Paul is exhorting the Galatians to be their brother's keeper, he knew might have, what might have been going through their heads. How they might be thinking, it's not my job, I'm not an elder. Besides, how can I be expected to confront my brother in sin if I don't have an MDiv or any training in biblical counseling? So Paul reminded the Galatians that the responsibility to be the brother's keeper falls on you who are spiritual. By using the word spiritual, Paul is automatically, automatically rolling out unbelievers since they do not have the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 1, you're told that you should not walk in the counsel of the wicked. As a Christian, we should not go to secular counselors who use methodology developed by men who hate God to care for your soul or for the souls of other men. If you seek worldly counsel, you will get worldly solutions. You will get counsel that drives you away from Christ and His Word. By the word spiritual, Paul is simply referring to any mature Christian who is walking in the Spirit. In other words, any Christian man or woman who is exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit, seen in Galatians chapter 5. But by the fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This does not mean that a Christian must reach the state of perfection where he no longer sins before he goes to his brother. If that was the case, none of us would ever be able to go to our brother. What he means is that a Christian should not be in any overt sin or struggling with any life-dominating sin. It means that he takes to heart Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, where Jesus said, And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can he say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly 
to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Before you go to your brother, examine your heart and confess your sins. If the Holy Spirit reveals a log in your eye, remove it before going to your brother. After talking about how we should go, he reminds us of the goal of confronting a brother in sin. The goal is not to purge the church of anyone who annoys you or is not living up to your standard of holiness. It is not to cleanse the church of anyone who sins. If that were the case, you'd be following your brother right out the door. The goal is restoration. Let me repeat that. The goal is restoration. The word restore means to put back in order or to return to a state of prior usefulness. It was used as a medical term for the setting of broken bones and the mending of fishing nets. Paul was not referring to a partial restoration, where your fallen brother is treated like a second-class citizen, where he's walking on eggshells and trying to avoid sideways glances from other people in the church, where he's on double-secret probation and everybody's just waiting for him to slip up again. What Paul is referring to is a complete and total restoration, where the wayward brother is treated like the transgression never happened. After commanding all mature believers to restore and fallen brothers, Paul tells us that it should be done in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness can also be translated as meekness. When you first go to your brother in sin, it should not be done in a harsh or angry manner. You should not kick him while he's down or use this as an opportunity to point out everything he's ever done wrong. You should not go to him secretly hoping that he won't repent so you can kick him out of the church. You should go to him with a broken heart and open arms. You should go to him with a true heartfelt desire to see him repent and to be fully restored. The great reformer Martin Luther was a tough man for a tough time. He definitely does not have a reputation for being gentle. I mean, there's even an... um, Martin Luther insult generator on the internet where you can pull up his various insults so you can make memes. But what most people don't know about him is that he was a compassionate and gentle counselor. I believe he perfectly captured the spirit in which we're supposed to approach a brother in sin when he said, run onto him and reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words and embrace him with motherly arms. My friends, if you've ever confronted a brother in sin, does that describe how you approached him? Or did you go to him with an angry heart, clenched teeth, or clenched teeth, closed fists, and ready to throw down? Or did you go to... <clears throat> this command to restore a brother also comes with a warning. At the end of verse 1, Paul said, Each of you look into yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Paul is giving a warning that when you go to a brother trapped in sin, it can be dangerous, very dangerous, but it must be done. It must be done out of love for Christ, his law, and your brother. But if you're not careful, you can be ensnared in the same trap that he is, or worse. With the exception of Jesus Christ, no one is above falling into sin. If you ever find yourself saying, I would never do that, you're a lot closer to giving into sin than you think. 
Warning bells should be going off in your head as soon as those words enter your mind. This is not the only time that Paul warned us about the danger of thinking one was above falling into sin. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, he warned, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. As I studied our text, I couldn't help but to think about two pastors that I really admired in my early Christian walk. Both of them held to the doctrines of grace and were well known for their orthodoxy. Both of them were brilliant exegetes and captivating preachers. Hour-long sermons felt like they were 10 minutes. Both of them were gifted teachers and were able to take complex theological topics and make them understandable to the average Christian. Both of them were writing books and starting to become well-known in Reformed circles. Both of them were pastors and were well-known for tenderly caring for their sheep. But what nobody knew that on the inside, they were struggling with pride and did not heed Paul's warnings. While counseling women, they did not take the proper precautions and indulge in sexual sin. They sinned against God. They sinned against their wives and their families. They sinned against the church. They sinned against the woman they committed adultery with. They brought shame to the name of Christ. They disqualified themselves from their, from their ministry. My friends, we can learn a valuable lesson from these two fallen pastors. It does not matter how mature in the faith you think you are. It does not matter how mature in the faith other people think you are. You're not above falling or even diving into, into sin. With that said, this danger should not prevent you from being your brother's keeper. But it does mean that you should be on guard and take the necessary precautions. When you go to your brother and try to restore him, never forget the old Puritan saying, but by the grace of God go I. My friends, confronting sin and restoring a wrong brother is one way that you can biblically be your brother's keeper. Now let's look at the relief. Verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Due to Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden, life is anything but easy. Tremendous burdens have been placed on your shoulders. Burdens such as medical problems, loss of loved ones, broken relationships, financial difficulties, and temptations that seem impossible to withstand. These burdens can be so heavy that they'll crush you unless someone comes alongside to help carry you, or in some cases, carry these burdens for you. The heaviest and most dangerous of these burdens is sin. You cannot bear the burden of your sins by yourself. If you try, you will only end up in hell. Your family cannot bear it for you. Your brothers and sisters in Christ cannot bear it for you. Pastor Doug cannot bear it for you. But there is one who can, Jesus Christ. If you've not already done so, repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you do, he will bear the burden of your sins for you. He will pay the penalty of your sins for you. He will remove all the guilt and shame from you. He will give you his righteousness. He will save you and redeem you. But that's not all. If you are in Christ, it's not just a burden of your sins that Christ carries for you. Throughout the Bible, we are exhorted to cast on him the various burdens and stresses of life. 
In the Old Testament, we find verses like Psalm 55.22. Cast your burden upon Yahweh and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. In the New Testament, we find verses such as 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. You may be thinking, how can I cast my burdens and my anxieties on Christ? He is God. He's perfect. He never sinned. How could he possibly know what he likes to be truly tempted? How could he possibly know what I'm going through? My friends, do not forget that while Jesus was fully God, he was also fully man. In Hebrews 4.15, we're reminded that, for we do not have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who, I'm sorry, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. As a Christian, you're not just called to cast your burdens on Christ. You're also commanded to bear the burdens of other Christians. You're called to follow the example of Jesus, the ultimate burden bearer. This command is easy to understand, but it's hard to follow. Burden bearing is hard, it's inconvenient, and the opportunities to do so never come at the right time. They seem to only happen when you have 10,000 other things to do. It's also so easy to get distracted by our problems that we might not even realize what our other brothers and sisters in Christ are going through. But just like confronting a brother in sin, it must be done. But what can this look like in the context of a local church? It can be as simple as sitting down and listening to your brother as he pours his heart out about what he is going through. It may be getting your hands dirty and rolling up your sleeves to help relieve some of the burden. Doing things like driving your brother to a medical appointment or stepping in as a father figure for some children in your church who lost theirs. How you bear your brother's burdens will depend on what he needs and what you're capable of doing. We can also bear the burdens by prayer for brothers who are entangled in sin or going through various trials. Not the generic popcorn prayers that you feel obligated to give because someone asked you to pray for them, but true heartfelt prayer that comes from a heart that truly loves your brothers and sisters in Christ. According to John Kelvin, our prayer must, be self, must not be self-centered. It must arise not only because we feel our own need as a burden we must lay upon God, but also because we are so bound up in love for a fellow man that we feel their need as acutely as our own. To make intercession for men is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them. My friends, when was the last time you lifted up the name of a brother and sister in, in Christ in the way that Kelvin was talking about? Have you ever done it? But we, before we move on to the second half of this verse, there's something that important we must mention that is easy to miss. Did you notice that Paul did not tell you to wait until your brother asks for help? He did not tell you first obtain your elders' permission or to wait for your church to start a benevolence ministry. He said to bear one another's burdens. In other words, if your brother needs help, you should help him. You don't have to wait until he asks for help. In the second half of verse 2, Paul said that 
When we bear each other's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. What in the world did Paul mean by that? He just spent five chapters talking about how you cannot fulfill the law on your own and how we're saved by faith alone. So is he really telling you that you can fulfill the law of Christ? Is he putting you back under the law? Is he saying that we may be under some new type of law, like some of our new covenant theology friends believe? Not at all. He is simply referring to what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 15, verse 12, when he said, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. This commandment to love one another just as Christ loved us is part of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the law of love. When you're saved, you're giving a new heart. And this new heart is capable of loving people like Christ loves you. If you love your brother, you're not letting him be crushed under the weight of his burdens. So let me ask you, do you love your brother like that? Do you love your brother like Jesus loves him? If not, get on your knees and pray to God. Ask him to help you love your brothers and sisters in Christ as he loves them. My friends, bearing burdens is one way that you can biblically be your brother's keeper. Now let's look at the reflection. Verses 3 through 5 address what is probably the most neglected aspect of being your brother's keeper. The need to have a proper view of yourself. If you don't have a proper view of yourself, it is very hard to self-sacrificially care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 3, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This verse warns you of the real danger of pride whenever you confront sin and bear the burdens of others. If you're not careful, pride will turn you into the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. What we see in Luke 18, 11 to 12, the Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Have you ever acted like that? Where you start to think that you're so much better and holier than your brothers who are in sin or in need of help? Where you look at them with disdain instead of compassion? According to John MacArthur, some people get so caught up in their own holiness that they look to the Trinity for a possible vacancy. Some Christians act like they're spiritual supermen. And just in case you didn't notice their spiritual giftedness, don't worry. They'll tell you all about it. They'll tell you all about the people they helped, the money they gave, and how many people they led to the Lord. They'll tell you all about their Bible reading habits and how many verses they have memorized. They'll tell you about all the hours they spent in prayer. These spiritual supermen hold themselves up as the standard of holiness and seem to love pointing out how everybody else falls short. They may confront sin and help carry the burdens of others, but it's done for the wrong reasons. They do it because it makes them feel and look good. What they fail to realize is that all their good deeds did nothing to earn them anything with God. As it says in Isaiah 64.6, all their righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The more they do, the more prideful they become. The more prideful they become, the more they look down on others. 
The more they look down on others, the more they see people as projects or problems instead of fellow sinners saved by grace. Just as Paul said, they see themselves as being someone who is really special, but in reality, they're nothing apart from Christ. They are self-deceived. Does that describe you? Do you look at yourself and think about how blessed your church is to have you there? If it does, humble yourself and repent. You cannot biblically be your brother's keeper if you're constantly looking down your nose at them. My friends, you might not have given yourself over to pride as much as these so-called spiritual supermen. But don't forget that pride starts small and can consume you very quickly. And pride always comes before a fall. In Proverbs 16:18, it states, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Be on guard against it. It must be mortified or killed as soon as you see it start to rear its ugly head. So how can you fight against becoming prideful so you can care for your brother? First, follow the advice of Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, where he reminded us that, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consultation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think of the same way, by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Second, preach the gospel to yourself daily. It will remind you of the price that Christ paid to save you from your sins. There is nothing more humbling than when you place yourself at the foot of the cross. Meditate on the fact that the only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. By doing so, you will realize that you are no different than your brother. You are a sinner just like he is. My friends, killing the sin of pride is one way that you can biblically be your brother's keeper. Verse 4, But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. By itself, this verse is very confusing, and seems to go against everything you've read in the Bible about boasting about yourself. For example, in James 4.16 it states, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Is Paul really saying that you should examine yourself so that you can boast and brag about yourself? Theologians offer two different interpretations of this verse. But before we look at where they differ, let's look at where they agree. They agree on the first and last parts of this verse. They agree that Paul is commanding you to examine yourself. Paul knows that the best antidote to self-righteousness is self-examination. An examination that compares you to Christ and his holy law. You should not compare yourself to other men because you can always find someone that you can compare yourself to that will make you look good. But when you compare yourself to God's law, you'll see how you have fallen short and your constant need for a savior. The old Puritan Robert Lydon has said, Men compare themselves with men and readily with the worst and flatter themselves with that comparative betterness. 
This is not the way to see spots, to look into the muddy streams of profane men's lives. But look into the clear fountain of the word, and there we both discern and wash them, and consider the infinite holiness of God, and this will humble us to the dust. But how do you do that? How do you compare yourself to God's law? We often talk about, we often talk about it, but I found while counseling people, they're often confused by how to do it. Because they don't have any real understanding of how our life and the law work together. You may be wondering the same thing, but are too embarrassed to ask. The simplest way to do it is by taking what Ray Comfort calls the good person test. The good person test is where you compare your life to each and every one of the Ten Commandments. For example, have you ever told a lie? If so, that makes you a liar and you violated the Ninth Commandment. If you're an unbeliever, comparing your life to the Ten Commandments reveal that you are not a good person and you need a Savior. If you are a believer, it will reveal that outside of Christ, you're not a good person and how you still need Him every moment of every day. Theologians also agree that Paul is telling you that you should not be an expert on pointing out the sin in other people's lives. Instead, you should be an expert on identifying sin in your own life. I don't think I have to say, but it's, isn't it so much easier to point out sin in other people's life to ident- than call it out in your own life? And in order to become an expert at it, it's going to take a lot of practice. Now let's look at where the theologians disagree. It's in the middle part of the verse where Paul said, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone. And I think both of these interpretations have merit. Some theologians believe that Paul is sarcastically saying that if you examine yourself, you'll see that you have a reason to boast in yourself. By using sarcasm, he's trying to drive home the point that you cannot boast about anything you can do. Other theologians believe that Paul is saying that you can only boast about the work that Christ is doing through you. They point out verses such as 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31 that states, So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, you should boast in Christ and what he is doing and not in yourself. My friends, examining yourself and comparing yourself to God's law is one way that you can biblically be your brother's keeper. Verse 5, for each one will bear his own load. When you read this verse, it kind of stops you in your tracks. It makes you want to say, wait a minute, Paul, you just contradicted yourself. In verse 2, you told us to bear one another's burdens, but now you're telling us that everyone will have to bear his own load? So which is it? Are we to bear one another's burdens, or will we have to bear our own loads? The answer is both. This is not an issue of contradiction. This is an issue of translation. Much of the confusion comes from how some older translations use the word burden instead of load in verse 5. The word translated burden in verse 2 is a Greek word baros. It refers to something that is too heavy and too large for a person to carry by themselves, such as a very large rock or a boulder. Now, you have to excuse my Greek pronunciation for this next one. But the word translated as burden or load in verse 5 is the Greek word fortion. It refers to kind of like a backpack or a knapsack, something that was meant to be carried by one person. So in verse 2, 
Paul is teaching us about our responsibilities to each other. In verse 5, he's teaching us about our personal responsibility. As you can see, Paul did not contradict himself. There are two important lessons that we can learn from Paul when he said, for each one will bear his own load. First, your brother is ultimately responsible for himself. At the end of the day, he cannot blame anybody else for his sins or his sinful responses. He is responsible for his actions and his thoughts, even if you neglected your duty to be his keeper. Second, you will not be judged in regards to your salvation, but you will have to give an account to God for what you did and did not do in his name. In 1 Corinthians 3, 10-17, Paul said, According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will indicate it because it is revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a, receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so through fire. Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, God would destroy him, for the sanctuary of God is holy, and that is what you are. My friend, God is giving all Christians gifts used to glorify him, to edify, and to help other believers and to build his church. If your gift is preaching, you will not be judged on how well organized your sermons are or on your delivery. If your gift is teaching, you will not be judged on the ability to make professional-looking PowerPoint presentations or how detailed your lesson plans are. If your gift is hospitality, you won't be judged on how well you clean your house or how good of a cook you are. What you'll be judged on is your obedience to using those gifts to glorify God and to serve your fellow man. My friends, when you stand before the Lord on that fateful day and your works are laid out before you, will you be ashamed because you neglected your responsibility to be your brother's keeper? Or will you hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? I pray that you hear the latter. My friends, understanding that all men will carry their own load is one way that you can biblically be your brother's keeper. As we come to a close, I pray that each and every one of you takes to heart the the biblical command to be your brother's keeper. That you do not let the fear of man stop you from confronting sin. That you do not let hurt feelings and bitterness keep you from restoring a fallen brother. That you follow the example of Jesus Christ and bear the burdens of others. That you think of others as more important than yourself. That you regularly examine yourself so that you do not look down on your brothers and sisters who are in sin or are suffering. That you realize that you will have to carry your own load. That you will be your brother's keeper. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we just can be for you today. And we just, when we look at this text, it's so easy for us to read it, agree with it, but then go out and not do it. I just pray that you just convict us 
of all the times when we've neglected the duties you've given to us to be our brother's keeper. I pray that you help just convict us of our sins and give us the heart that you have for our brothers and sisters, that we're willing to bear those burdens even when it's hard and inconvenient to do so. And I just pray that you just help us to use the gifts you've given us to serve you and to build your church. And we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.